All right, good morning, and uh, an early Happy New Year. You are the brave souls who have come out in what my car this morning registered as negative two. Is it any better out there now? Five. Five, okay, good. That's a little more comfortable. Um, I will be running in it today, uh, ending the year of 2017, I think, pretty well out in the snow and uh, in the cold. Um, I am obviously not Pastor Will. Uh, my name's Kyle Reschke. I'm the pastor of Sending and Outreach at Wheaton Bible Church. Will asked if I would uh, fill in today, and um, I do have to say this is one of the more intimidating pulpits to teach in because of the, the teachers, preachers I admire and very much want to be like, uh, Will is foremost among them. So um, really glad to be with you all today. And Will, I will make up for that compliment and slam you a little bit later. <laughs> Have no worry. It's still true. We'll just, we'll correct it for your uh, ego heading into the new year. <clears throat> um, 2017. 2017 was a, was a really exciting year for me. A lot, a lot happened. I don't know about you, but to close the year, I always find myself in um, a really reflective mood. Uh, looking back on the year, what went well, what didn't go well, what's uh, to celebrate, what did God do, um, where did I fall short, and, and what are some goals heading into 2018? I'm a goal setter. You know, to the point where I, uh, my goals in, in the little journal that I'll keep in my pocket are, oh, these are intellectual, these are spiritual, these are uh, just reading, these are outings, or ex whatever it might be, is there's categories and pages and pages. Um, whether that's healthy or not, you can tell me after the service, but that's what it looks like at this time of year. There's a reflection. 2017, I got married. That was something definitely to celebrate. We're half a year in, and uh, that's been really fun. 2017, here in the holidays, has also been a reflective moment for my family and I as we grieve the passing of uh, my grandma and grandpa Reshki. The uh, grandpa passed last winter, um, grandma passed just at Thanksgiving. They felt very ready to pass on and to go be with the Lord. And um, their home, which is in Naperville for literally my entire life, has been the gathering place. You know, for extended family and cousins and, and aunts and uncles. And so for these people, really the only people in my life who have known me my entire life, this is where... This home and this family is where those relationships were built. And right around Thanksgiving, we grieved the passing of Grandma, which means that, you know, just on Wednesday as we celebrated Christmas together, this was our last Christmas in Grandma and Grandpa's home. Sounds like a, a sad thing. It's something to grieve, but we also had a chance to celebrate because we had a chance to celebrate a journey that was really beautifully lived by people we loved. We're going to talk about a journey today. We're going to talk about um, the fact that we are all on a journey. And I want to ask you the question of what is defining your journey as we head into 2018. Because I caught a couple cousins and, my, and I caught an extremely special moment and a very private moment. But knowing my grandparents, I'm very sure they would be fine with me sharing it. Before my grandfather passed, um, he had had a stroke and so uh, needed some assistance going up to sleep. And um, Grandma and Grandpa were uh, going to sleep together and the grandkids were downstairs 
talking away as we do late into the night. Um, and we had a, a baby monitor so that we could hear. If Grandma and Grandpa needed help, we could go upstairs and, um, and help them. And we overheard what I think is one of the most special conversations I've heard in my entire life. And it was simple. My grandparents, who were 92 and 89 at the time, were lying in bed together going to sleep, and we heard my grandma over the baby monitor say, Well, Bob, we did it. That was it. It was the extent of the conversation. Well, Bob, we did it. They'd had this incredibly beautiful journey and and, and nearly 67 years of marriage together and had set out they wanted to leave a legacy of faith. And one of my grandfather's last prayers is he said, and he praised God, but he prayed for strength for his family, that they would continue to be people who would be influencers for change in their churches, in their schools, in their community, in their jobs, and especially in their homes. And I got to hear this very private moment. It's not that they were public and felt that they needed to say, you know, we've done what we needed to do. This was a private moment. Nobody, as far as they knew, was listening. Well, Bob, we did it. We are all on a journey. And we're journeying towards something. That's what I want us to talk about today. What is defining our journey. What is defining our journey? How many of you um, have already done it or will this year be making New Year's resolutions? Raise your hands. 93% of you are being dishonest. You are in church. Okay? We feel of the, I think we feel aware. I feel aware of the areas that, that I might have fallen short I looked up some statistics uh, for the Chicago area. There was a study done on the top 10 New Year's resolutions that were made in 2017. And then there was a follow-up just this last week for how people felt about their New Year's resolutions in the last week of the year. Here are the top 10. The things that are defining people's goals, who they want to be, what they want to do over the last year. Number 10, they said, find the love of my life. Number nine, do more good deeds for others. Learn something new on my own. Work out more often. Spend time with family and close friends. Do more exciting things. Quit smoking. Make better financial decisions. Uh, A whole slew of things that came into the category of just general life or self-improvements. And the top for 2017, lose weight and healthier eating. Now, if you had a guess... How many people uh, or what percentage reported that they felt they were successful in reaching their resolutions for 2017? 50. Wow, you're generous. 10%. Yeah, 5%. You guys are close. 9.2% reported that they felt that they were successful in achieving their resolution. And the journey they'd set out before themselves for the last year, 9.2% felt they were successful. My point here and my point today is that we are always um, on a journey. We are never in a situation in life where we're not journeying towards something, where something isn't defining us. We are always in that state in life. So my question is, what is defining that journey. 
That's where we pick up our text for today. We are finishing um, the Rejoice series that Pastor Will's been preaching. We heard about um, Zechariah's worship and Mary's worship and the shepherds rejoicing. And now, with the wise men, the magi, we see the far-off world rejoicing at the birth of Jesus. It's an epic journey and they had a clear definition and destination. So what I want to do today is take us through this passage. Um, in the passage, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we find three approaches or responses to the birth of Jesus. We find three responses to the birth of Jesus, and we're going to take one of those and extrapolate that out to four examples of right worship. Now, for those of you who worship here regularly, uh, you may be getting nervous because if Pastor Will ever mentioned three approaches and then something with the number four to follow it, you're aware that you're here until the new year. <laughs> Tomorrow, Tuesday, whatever it might be. Um, okay, last time Will preached, uh, last time I heard him preach, he had half a sentence and half a verse and said very publicly, he goes, if you don't think I can preach for 45 minutes on not even a full verse or sentence, you're about to learn something really special. <laughs> and we did. All right, we can uh, jump into the word here. Um, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I know it's up on the screen. I loved this story because it's a story that I realized for a lot of years I've taken for granted. Um, a lot of years I just thought it was the Christmas carols, but this taught me about the character of God and the journey that I'm on in new ways this week. So let's read this together. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, this he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Long passage a story of a journey. And in here, we find three distinct responses to the birth of Jesus. Three distinct responses. I'm going to go through these one by one. The first, we find King Herod's response. 
The Magi go to King Herod. King Herod is known as King of the Jews at this time. To give you a little context of King Herod, he is known by the title King. He's King. We see that in the Scriptures. He is known throughout the Roman Empire as King of the Jews. He's part of the Roman Empire that's expanding like crazy across the whole kind of known ancient world at this time. This is the world that Jesus now inhabits. Now Herod, history reports, not a great guy. A little bit of context for him through ambition, through becoming kind of a lackey of the Romans, Herod starts eliminating all of his competition for the throne. He is king and nobody else will be king. And he's ruthless. He is reported to have killed several of his family members, a wife and three of his sons, because they could possibly be claimants to the throne. Catch this, at his funeral, before he, as he was dying, he had several well-loved people and other nobles of his kingdom put to death so that there would be more people in uh, Jerusalem grieving when he died. Even if they were grieving other people's deaths, he wanted more grieving over his death. Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor of Rome, said, I love this quote, he said, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Herod's pig is far safer than anyone who could possibly be a claimant to his throne that he will guard with everything that he has. So that's Herod. Herod in all of his life says, I am the king. This title, this throne, this ruling, all of this is mine and others and everything exists for my pleasure. Herod's response, what do we read? When, he, when King Herod had heard the Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and they asked, they're asking the current king of the Jews and they ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These wise men from a distant land are not coming here to pay homage to King Herod, king of the Jews. They're saying the actual king of the Jews has been born and we've come to worship him. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Why disturbed? This is a threat to his power. This is a threat to his throne. So first response, as I've defined these, I call King Herod's response self-centered. The self-centered response. The response to a coming king that says, nope, no matter what other king comes, I'm the king. I was convicted in this this week because I see a self-centered nature. I see my own temptations to be the king of my own life. I see those temptations and everyone around me also. And you may be responding going, Kyle, hold on a second, man. I am not here killing family members, claimants to the throne, doing any of those things, uh, you know, setting out to just wipe out all competition. I know you're not, probably most of you. I hope not. 
But there are examples of those little King Herods, the the little King Herod that can live in my heart that is just asserting itself that I am the one. The one that others exist for. The one that all of these things exist for. Examples of this, you know what I find myself doing? I sometimes play the blame game. You ever played the blame game? Justifying whatever actions you do because of what somebody else did to you? Hang out with like five-year-old kids and you get a perfect picture of the blame game all the time. It seems clear. Hang out with adults and it's just as much there. It's just a little more subtle. I did this because she did this. I reacted in this way because this happened to me. We do it at work, at home, in our marriages. If that doesn't uh, fall into a category for you, hoarding, finances, levels of comfort, whatever we're doing that is saying, you know what? This all does exist for me. I'm here. People aren't giving me my due because this exists for me. Self-centered response to the birth of the king. We find later in that verse, so when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Then we find the second response to the birth of Jesus. That verse finishes, and all Jerusalem with him. King Herod was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Context of Jerusalem. This is the home of the religious elite. This is the home of the Pharisees who throughout Jesus' life and ministry will be testing him, will be trying to challenge him, will be trying to prove him wrong. The political elite and the religious elite have sold out to either Rome, the Roman Empire, or they've sold out to their own, and this is point number two, self-righteousness. So we have self-centered and self-righteous. Where self-centered might say, I am the king, Self-righteous would say, I don't need the king. Or, I can become the king. So this is going on in Jerusalem. And again, do we see this in our own lives? Are we clearly saying, I don't need the king. I do not need anyone in authority over my life. I am fine as I am. Or, God loves me because I've done this checklist. I've followed the rules. That's how I know God loves me. It's a self-righteousness. I will earn everything. I will earn God's favor. In our culture, we wrestle with this. This was an additional quote. It's not up on the screen because I was reading it last night uh, really late. And um, one of the most famous people of the entire last many generations. Okay, One of the greatest uh, philosophers of our age Madonna, that's a joke, yeah, it is Madonna, writes this though, and I think this captures a self-righteousness. But if there's anybody who is famous, is well-known, who is receiving what she feels is her due, she writes, I think, something that was uh, really deep and profound. Madonna writes, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I am just mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. 
And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Wow. Going about life, I feel the need, the pressure to prove I'm somebody. I will earn whatever comes my way. Self-centeredness says I is the king. I am the king. Self-righteousness says I don't need the king. Fine on my own. But there's an awareness there that that's not really meeting a deeper need either. We're all on a journey. Is self-centeredness defining the journey? Is self-righteousness defining the journey? We come to a third response. Selfless. We've counted, uh, encountered the king. We've encountered the rest of Jerusalem. But then we encounter the magi. We encounter in our verses, they take this long journey. They go to Herod. They go and search carefully for the child. We read in the Bible. Um, they went on their way. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. They, then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. They came to say, I am not the king. I need the king. And then they bowed before the king. This was one of the most fascinating pieces of studying for, um, for the sermon this week because the Magi, here's the context, okay? Wise men is a proper term, magos, wise men. These uh, Magi are astrologers, philosophers, scientists. They're wise counsel in the court of Persia, which is the kingdom to the east. We read that the Magi came from the east, the main religion in their uh, kingdom at the time was the worship of the storm god or the fire god called Ahuru Mazda. So they're pagan worshipers. But the pagan, even these foreign pagan worshipers understood that someone significant had been born. This was the fascinating history of how God works all of these things together. This blew my mind because these are foreigners, counselors to kings. How would they have any knowledge about the king of the Jews? See, historically at this time, uh, the Jews would have been kind of this backwater kingdom in the Roman Empire historically, it's not just an opinion of mine, of not huge significance in the Roman Empire. Had been conquered so many times. So why would these counselors to kings from the east who worship another god, how would they even know? And once they knew, consider the birth of this king of the Jews to be important. Why would they care? This this blew my mind, okay? Because God's people in so many different periods have been exiled, have been displaced, have been conquered. And we actually encounter the term wise man and leader of the wise men in the Bible in an account 600 years before the birth of Christ. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Daniel. 
Daniel chapter 2, I'm going to start in verse 46. But here's a little bit of the context, and for time I can't give you all of it. But Daniel is given over to the court of Babylon to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. Because the nation of Israel has just been conquered. So Daniel goes as a political prisoner um, to serve in Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel remains a faithful servant of God. The king has a dream. Nobody can interpret this dream, but there's a sense that it's of great importance for the nation. And when all the who wise men can't interpret the dream, Daniel, this faithful servant of God, is called and interprets a dream that none of the king's wise men could interpret. And there was a result of this. King Nebuchadnezzar responds in a really cool way. And I think it, in a lot of ways, sets the stage for the story, the the main scripture we're in today. Verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. 600 years before the birth of Jesus, the stage is being reset in a new way because now a major leader of this kingdom follows the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And so over those centuries, the scriptures of the Jewish people would be very much prevalent in this foreign kingdom because the centers of learning that would be studying the Jewish scriptures grew like crazy. So our wise men would have all kinds of context for, um, for a star, for a great light, Um, knowing the prophecies about when the king would come, they would know how to identify it and they would know what that means, why that king is worthy of worship. So check this out. Numbers chapter 24. Prophecy in the book of Numbers. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. What does this king mean for the world? Prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Foreign pagan worshipers, hundreds of years of different conquering and battles, but the stage was set that these people would not just know when the king was born, but what that king meant, not just for Israel, but for all the nations of the world. I think that is, that blew my mind this week. I had never connected that truth before. How God is working, even when we think, oh, Jerusalem has been sacked, it's been conquered, destroyed. 
God is setting the stage for foreign kingdoms to understand the importance and the beauty of the coming king. Amen? Okay, so our wise men, we had the self-centeredness. We had the self-righteous, and now we have the self-less. The wise men have four um, ways of, four um, examples of right worship, and I'm going to go through these quickly. They're examples of right worship, of wisdom, are shown back in Matthew chapter 2. So first, a wise person, what did the wise men do? Showing themselves selfless. A wise person approaches God. They undertake this journey. They go to Herod. Um, They went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. A wise person approaches God. The journey was substantial. Estimates are about a thousand miles And we see this truth in so many other places in Scripture. Psalm 14, uh, verses 1 through 3, we find that if the wise person approaches God, we read here about what the fool does. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. A wise person approaches God. The fool says, there is no God. Second, A wise person adores God. We read this in our passage today. They came to the house. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. A wise person adores God. True worshipers. They bowed down and they worshipped him. Third, after they worshipped him, Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Third, a wise person adorns God. I tried to make these all A's to be memorable for you all today. Approaches, adores, adorns God. This concept of treasure is all throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus is saying, you are on a journey. What is defining your journey? says later in in the book of Matthew, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A key theme of Jesus' ministry. A wise person adorns, will offer all treasure to treasure Jesus instead. And finally, we got four A's, guys. A wise person acknowledges God. Acknowledges. Because we find here, uh, as if we read more in chapter 2, Herod's intention was not like the wise men, to go and worship, to go and approach, adore, adorn, or acknowledge God. Herod's intention was to kill this claimant to his throne, the king of the Jews. And so the end of our passage, and having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route, acknowledging God's leadership in all of this. I have a story I want to share with you all today. Because if we say, and if we end by saying, the good life, the Christian life, the saved life, however you want to say it, if we say it's just about four steps, we're missing the point. Because my question is, it's not just about our approach to God. The wise men, these are great examples. They took this journey 
And the destination of their journey was clear. The destination of the journey was Jesus. We see that. But here's what I love is we got to circle back around and say, what was the start of the journey also? The start of the journey wasn't the wise men approaching God, acknowledging God, adoring, adoring. That was not the start of the journey. The journey had started way before that, which is what the entire story of the Bible is about. That it is God's mission to bring people back to him. God first sought us and God first sought them. And we have good examples. We have these four steps about what it looks like to worship. But we're on a journey and the defining point of the journey, beginning and end and everything in between, Jesus. We're all on a journey. What is defining your journey? I want to share this story with you. This hit home with me with a story from overseas. Um, And I'm preparing, I'm going to to Kenya in just a few weeks. I want to share a story with some remarkable people. This is uh, a picture of uh, two mothers in an extremely remote part of East Africa, right on the border of Kenya, South Sudan, Ethiopia, Somalia, kind of in the Horn of Africa there. Periodic drought strikes this region. Seasonal rains can miss and that causes the people who... Um, rely primarily on livestock for their livelihoods and for their food, Um, that during times of drought you can find 40, 50, even up to 60% of people on the brink of starvation. It's a desperate, desperate situation. And this last time in the last year when drought struck struck Turkana, Mama Lobek, who's the older woman, uh, lying down on her side on the right, lost everything. She has five children, had been abandoned by um, her husband a long time ago. All their livestock died and they were left on the brink of starvation. With no other place to go, uh, Lobeck walked for days to another village where she hoped to find anything, any kind of help or work or relief. She arrived with her five children so thirsty and hungry that she could barely talk and needed help to stand because she was so wobbly on her feet hadn't eaten for days. She'd become so malnourished um, that she walked into this village weighing 84 pounds. Then she met a complete stranger, Gasike. Gasike is the young woman on the left who's a mother of four, also just trying to do the best she can to survive. She owns a little shop in this village, but it's running out of food. They're not doing too well in food um, either. But in spite of the economic impact of the drought, Gasike takes Lobeck into her home. And by the way, that's her home, what you see them pictured in. And she started feeding and caring for these strangers. And she said, whatever happens to Lobeck, if she passes because the journey was too stressful or if she becomes well, I'm with her and I'm going to care for her. And when asked how or why she could do this, this young woman, Gasike, did not hesitate at all. And she said, I have compassion because I am a follower of Jesus and because I was once an orphan myself. I have suffered before and I know what it's like. Exact words. I have compassion because I am a follower of Jesus and I was an orphan myself. 
That's worship. That's journey being defined in the right ways. Because it wasn't even about her, I'm a Christian and I'm going to earn God's love by caring for this person. She just like Jesus did, flips it all around and says, I'm a Christian. I knew what it was like to be without God. I knew what it was like to be self-centered or self-righteous. And I was alone and I was an orphan and I found a family. And I want to see that for everyone else and anyone who God brings my way. That's where I want to conclude today. The journey didn't start with her approaching God. The journey doesn't start with us and what we can do. The journey started when God came to us. And that adds the definition forever. Because God first approached Ngasike, because God first approached us. We were once orphans and found love, found a family, and would see that. That's why we share, that's why we talk about evangelism, that's why we talk about serving others. Not to earn God's favor or love, but because God first came to us. The journey starts somewhere and it ends somewhere. What's defining it for you? As you go to the new year, as you finish this year, looking at where you are, at who you are. Where are you in that journey or what's defining your journey today? I would ask and I'm going to pray after we worship that you would ask Jesus into your life that Jesus would be the defining part of that journey. Jesus would define all of it. That Jesus, you would say, I want Jesus to be my destination. I know he started it. And I trust that he's going to be with me every step of the way. If that's the reset you're looking for, take the step today. Come talk to me or Pastor Will or... Um, you know, any of the people volunteering here would love to pray that with you, would love to talk about that with you. If it's a new journey, if it's redefining the journey, whatever it is in 2018, let Jesus define it. Because it's not about you and what you can do or how much you've failed in the past, whatever it is. It's about Jesus and what he's done. And it was perfectly, perfectly done. He journeyed perfectly. Amen?